Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 23rd, 2021, we continue our series titled Uncommon Joy, the Book of Philippians. Today's sermon, Good and Bad Examples, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Enjoy. You know, I remember when um, my children were, were little, there was this song that they learned um, in, I think it was probably in Sunday school, I don't know, it could have been on one of those cassettes that had the little worship, remember what a cassette was? Uh, it, it, little worship things that they, we would play, you know, and, and, and they, would, they would hear that, and um, you know, those songs stick with you, you know, forever. And so I remember this little song, and it, it had two verses in it, and it went something like this. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that? careful little eyes what you see because the father up above is looking down in love so be careful then the second verse was be careful little ears what you hear that's you know you you hear that and all of a sudden it occurs to you well that is deeply practical truth I mean, I was thinking about, you know, playing that, you know, for, for you know, our little kids. When I, my, my little kids at that point were just babies, and I wanted them to put that into mind. But the truth is, that type of truth stays with you for a lifetime. And, and it's so important, even this morning, because the passage we're looking at this morning is a warning to the church about who we allow to speak into our lives, about who we listen to, who will shape our thinking, and our values. That's a huge issue today. I mean, if you think about the news that's out there, you know, on your TV or social media, you know, things that that pop up all over the place, so much of it today is biased and opinion-oriented because it's based upon who's paying the bills. It's not based on truth. So where do I get truth at? Well, the truth here is that we need to be careful about the voices that we allow spiritually to come into our lives. So let's look at the text together and we'll break it down. One of the things that, that Paul's gonna do in this is he's going to give us an example of who we can listen to and then he's gonna stop and he's gonna give us examples of who you should not listen to and then he's gonna come back and tell you why it's so important to hone in on this example. What is it about these examples that we follow? But here's what he says, starting in verse 17 through verse 21, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what Paul's gonna do here at the very beginning here, starting in verse 17, is he's going to give us an example to follow. Now, the passage actually starts off with the term brothers. Uh, that's meant here actually in this case probably for both male and female. It's a term of connection and affection, but what it does is it defines the audience. You see, 
This is not probably something, this particular little section here is not really something that a lost world was going to be looking for. It's something for us within the church. You know, you can open up God's word and man, the gospels are just wooing to whether you're in the church or you're outside of the church. I mean, to look and see, you know, the fact that, that, that Jesus would feed the 5,000 and he would go to a leper and be able to heal him or raise the, the sick, you know, from the dead, I mean, the, the, the dying and raise him to new life. And, and just, it's amazing when you look at all these different things about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. But the warning here in Philippians chapter three is for believers, Now, what Paul tells us here in verse 17 is he's willing to make himself an everyday example. Previous to this, if you were to go back into chapter two, you'll know that Paul instructed the church there that we were to look at Jesus as the ultimate example. He's the one that laid down his life, you know, that humbled himself and, and laid down his life for us. But now he's saying, imitate me. The reason why is because Paul knew that in this life, with all the things that challenge us, one of the things that we need very often in this life is living, breathing examples. Just about everything. I mean, I remember when I became a homeowner and, and, and I had to go out and you know, the trees were just going crazy all over the place and you know, I, I go and I get a saw. I don't just go out there and go, you know, well, problem solved. You know, I mean, you literally, you watch your neighbors and you watch the people that come and do that. Where did they cut at? How did they do that? You know, I mean, I learned out about mowing the lawn. You know, what am I supposed to do here? And you know, do, I mean, all those things like that. We watch by learning, especially when you're young. We need those types of examples. This isn't the first time that he's done this. If you go to second, or if you go to the book of Corinthians, you'll see that Paul twice there looks at the church there in Corinth and he says, hey, you need to imitate me. He does the same thing for the church in Thessalonica. Now at first glance, when you look at that, that can seem actually a little bit odd. I mean, you've got this guy here and, and he's, he's writing the vast majority of the New Testament and he comes out and he says, hey, imitate me. You could look at that and go, wow, that's a little bit arrogant. It's really not. The truth is, what Paul knows is, is that it's human nature for us to watch people do things that we don't know how to do them or we feel like we're doing them wrong and try to figure out the right way to do it. And so a better way to probably look at that when he says imitate me is to just keep going in that line like he does in 1 Corinthians 11 and says imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there's nothing prideful in this. In fact, if you were to go back to last week's message when Jeff was talking, one of the things you'll see there in verse 12 is he says, not that I've already attained this or that I am already perfect. So he's basically saying, look, I haven't got my act together completely, but I'm willing to stick my neck out and say, if you want to know how to live this life, watch me because I'm going to do my best. Now, all of that is basically a setup to get to the next part of this And that is he's gonna give us the example in verses 18 and 19, the examples of who not to follow. Now, we'll go verse by verse through this. Verse 18, he says this. He says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. What's interesting, the first thing that you see here, or at least the first thing that jumped out to me as I'm studying all of this is Paul immediately gets emotional there in verse 18 regarding the people that he calls enemies of the cross. Now I looked and I couldn't find this happening in any other place. There's no other time in scripture where you see him 
tears, with, with tears crying. Why? Why is he so emotional? I, I think that Paul is genuinely concerned for these people and he has a burden to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ and they don't get it. I mean, think about it this way. You're here within the church. One of the things the church preaches is the gospel. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, burial, and resurrection. We base everything on that. Jesus doesn't go to the cross and die, you can't be forgiven. Jesus doesn't come out of the grave, your sin would be foolish in the whole thing. I mean, so we believe that, the death, burial, and resurrection. But what if you have someone that you love and care about and they go, so? So what? I mean, if you really love them, that's hard. I mean, it means everything to us and nothing to them. Paul here, I think, seems to be broken hard about that to the point that he's shedding tears. Now, where did he learn that? Well, if you go back uh, to the story of Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem for the Passion Week, uh, the Passion Week, if you, don't, if you don't remember that, the Passion Week of Christ is the last week of his life. Okay. The reason why it's called the Passion Week is because there's so many amazing and wonderful big things that happen in that. In fact, almost half of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. That's how important it is. As Jesus is walking, though, into Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 19, one of the things you'll see is, and by the way, he's going there for the Passover. He's going there to celebrate the Passover. One of the things you realize is, if you study history, is, is that the Jewish Passover meant a ton. In fact, Jews from all over the world would come to celebrate that, to be there for the holy day and to, to, to remember this moment, to gather together with family and friends, to remember the faithfulness of God in the past. Sometimes it would swell almost up to a million people. I mean, it was just tons and tons of people. And so Jesus is there, and he's getting ready to go into the city, and he sees all these people, so many people, that the city literally would not hold them, that they're literally you know, out on the surrounding parts of the town, outside of the walls and everything. They're camping there in those places. They're all coming there because in their minds, they're thinking, this is what I've got to do religious-wise, to make it. I've got to go through the rituals. I've got to go through the baths. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll know that, that even if you go to Temple Mount, you'll find there, there's all these old baths you had to go through and, and you would come through and each one of them was like this ceremony that you had to do. And so it was all about doing all the things that I'm supposed to do religious-wise. Make a sacrifice do the ritual, do the religious thing. And Jesus stops in, in Luke 19, 41, and it says he wept. You know why he wept? Because they didn't get it. They were coming there to do what they thought they had to do, but they were missing what he was going to do. And so, in verse 18, Paul calls them enemies of the cross. Now, don't think, when you think of enemies, we often tend to think of people that kind of hate each other. I don't think that's this at all. 
I don't think that means that at all. An enemy of the cross did not mean to be something we were, we were hated with. This is be someone that probably looked at that and thought, eh, I don't think the cross is that big a deal. Or someone that would just look and say it's foolish. I mean, you've, already, you've probably heard the statement before, the greatest form of hatred is just to not care at all, right? Let me show you something. Keep your finger here in Philippians, and I want you to go over to the book of 1 Corinthians, over to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter one. Did you turn to that? Now, while you're doing that, let me just tell you this. The, the church in Corinth um, had, is, is, had lots and lots of issues. They really did a lot of things wrong, okay? And, and the truth is, is the whole book in, in 1 Corinthians is all about addressing all the things they did from the very beginning all the way to the end. I mean, at the beginning, they're talking, they're arguing about, you know, divisions within the church and you get to the very end and they're arguing about, you know, the resurrection. I mean, it just starts at the beginning and kind of keeps going like that all the way through. And so as he begins to write in chapter one, he starts dealing with that and he says, look, some of you are arguing about all these foolish things. I mean, like who's your favorite speaker or some of you say, well, I follow Paul. Another one says, well, I follow Apollos. And then there's this other group of people saying, well, I was baptized by Peter. And, 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 and it's just ridiculous. They're all over the place. Instead of being in love with Jesus, they're arguing about who on this earth are they following. And then he stops and takes it a step further in chapter one and in verse 18 through 25, he says this. And by the way, he's writing this about people who were either in the church or hanging around the church. And he says this, he says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Remember what I said a minute ago? The word of the cross, the gospel story there is everything for us who believe, everything. But to people who don't believe, so what? It's it's folly. He keeps going, he says, where is the, he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, of course he has. He's going to bring victory through death. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what he preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross was then and is today to those who do not believe foolishness, and yet it is the polar opposite for us. It's interesting, so many people that I talk to, whether it, you know, it's, it's in, a, in a restaurant, the other day I was in a Home Depot and I got into a conversation with a guy. So many people think to get into heaven requires some type of a human response or effort. In their mind, we have to do something. I've got to do, you know, I've got to make this positive moment in life. I've got to make these sacrifices. To them, the thought that it's just absolutely foolish that God or some divine being, whoever, you know, out there would do every single thing for us, including give his only son to die for us. To them, that's just crazy. If you die, you lose. You lose. 
I mean, how can victory come through a loss, right? What they don't get is the cross and the resurrection go together. See, Jesus' death on the cross is the only way my sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. None. I don't care what you do. You cannot earn it yourself. But then beyond that, Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14 tells us that Jesus actually went and did this for us. Verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service repeatedly offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Did you catch that? All those sacrifices, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they covered up sin, they never took it away. They're always there to remind a group of people when you sin, blood has to be shed. But that's not the thing that's gonna save you. Verse 12 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is why he came in the flesh. Even John the Baptist read like that. At the beginning of the gospel message, you know, in, in John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus, or excuse me, John is down in the water. He's baptizing people there at that moment. He looks up and he sees Jesus come walking with some of his disciples with him. And he says, Oh, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't stop and go, hey, really interesting teacher there, character guys, I mean, we should listen to maybe. No, Jesus came to come and die. The cross is absolutely a requirement, but if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, none of it means anything. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, writes this in 1 Peter 1. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The cross the death and the resurrection go together. For some people, that's just way too much to grasp. To them, no deity would ever lower himself for his creation. That is exactly what Philippians chapter two tells us that Jesus did for us. So then you get into chapter three. And Paul feels, feels the need here to remind the church because he calls these people enemies of the cross. So what does that have to do with the tears thing again? Well, the tears really have to do with the spiritual battle that's going on that he's living with, because this group of people, he cares about them, and they're blind to the truths of God. They are religious. This is a group of people that are probably pretty good people. They might look like great neighbors to you. They're religious, they make sacrifices, they keep holy days and traditions, but they do not trust in the cross to remove their sins. 
And so Paul, like Jesus did in Luke 19 when he was coming into the city, he saw those gestures as empty because they cannot save them. Apart from Jesus, they will not be saved, and he weeps. You know, I, I, I don't know how that strikes you, but I'm gonna be honest with you. I have family who don't believe. When I read that, it convicts me that how could I be, I mean, like if Jesus wept over people and Paul wept over people, do I think I'm better than, should I not be weeping over my family? Should there not be times when I just come before the Lord and say, God, in your mercy, would you extend your kindness to my family? Of course I should. Now go back to verse 19 now because Paul's gonna give us four characteristics of these people here that he calls enemies of the cross. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, they set their mindset on earthly things. So the first thing he's gonna tell us is they're lost spiritually. The passage says here their end is destruction. Well, how can they be lost? Well, they're lost because they've never been found. I mean, the Bible's incredibly clear here in 1 John chapter, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. The life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a group of people that he's pronouncing their spiritual condition as destruction, that they're lost because they don't know Jesus. For them, it's all religion, it's all ritual, it's sacrifice, but without Jesus, no religion is good enough to save me. There is no sacrifice, Hebrews 10 says, that can save me. Nothing will make me right with God. I will constantly be looking, hoping for something else. Now, the second thing he says here, second quality in verse 19 is he says their priority is their own desire. Verse 19, he says their God is their belly. In other words, their philosophy on life is what is it that really makes me happy? Because that's really what this life should be about, right? So I'm gonna pursue what makes me happy. My own desires, my own appetite, uh, whatever it is I wanna do. So instead of controlling their own desires, their desires literally at that point control them. You know, I, I, I hope you don't suffer from any sort of addiction, but I will tell you that the reason why it's so difficult to battle alcohol or pornography or any one of those types of addictions are because they gratify our own desires. And we love that gratification. Paul's point is whatever I give myself to, that's who I am going to be worshiping. That becomes my God. And it never works. Jesus in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount looked at a group of people that were worried about what they were gonna eat, what they were gonna wear, where they were gonna live, all these things. They have all this kind of anxiety all through them and he stops and he says this really simple statement that totally makes sense when you read it in context. He says, but you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things, I'll take care of that. We're not supposed to seek what makes me happy first. We're not supposed to seek what, what makes me feel good 
for who I am. I'm supposed to seek what God is calling me to. Now, the third thing he says here in verse 19 is they celebrate the wrong things. The passage says they glory in their shame. They're, they're, they're boasting about things they should be embarrassed about, like some kind of sinful accomplishment. Like, oh yeah, you know, I, we went to a bar and I picked up someone, or, or, or I went, went to this party and wow, you should have, man, the drinks were just flowing, it was crazy, or man, I made this deal with this guy and I, I, I made a killing on it. That's not the model that we want to be following. It's characteristic of someone that is against the cross, not for it. Fourthly, he says here in verse 19, they're not heavenly minded. He says here they they set their minds on earthly things. The idea is that they don't see anything but this life and so they're not gonna plan for anything beyond this life. Now, why is that a problem? I mean, a lot of people could say, look, don't we live on earth? Why are we so worried about being earthly minded? Shouldn't I be more earthly minded? In fact, I don't really wanna be too heavenly minded, right? You know, the more I thought about that, because I've heard people say that before, well, you know, some people can be so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. In my whole lifetime, I've never met anybody like that. Never. But I've met plenty of people the opposite way that are so earthly-minded they cannot wrap their hands, their arms around what God is calling for their lives. This is a spiritual maturity issue. This is exactly what Jeff talked about last week. I mean, think about it. How many of you are parents, right? I mean, did you give your kids, anybody here give your kids an allowance growing up? I did, I don't know if it's the best thing or not, but you know, I did it because everybody else did it, right? As soon as I would give them allowance, you know what they'd wanna do? Spend it. I'd say, hey, why don't we put it in the little, you know, the little pig thing? No, I wanna go to Circle K. Because there's candy to be had, right? They wanna spend, it's like burning a hole in their pocket. I mean, I do the same thing now as a grandfather. I take my kids and we go, you know, my grandkids, and we'll go to uh, uh, Peter Piper Pizza. We'll go in there and, you know, we'll eat and everything like that. And then they got the little card, you know, and they get to go play the games. And they're so pumped. I can't figure out if they're more pumped about the game or going over and getting this ridiculously cheap little candy that you can't even buy in a store. (laughs) I mean, I've never even seen the wrapping on this kind of stuff. Or they want some, like, little, you know, it looks like a Frisbee that's like that big around, you know? And I mean, immediately the dog is going to tear it up or they're going to lose it inside my car. <laughs> and I, I, invariably, here's what I'll do. Well, you know what? Maybe we should save that and next time we'll get something better. They're looking at me like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> I'm spending it now. And you know what we write that off to? Well, They're young. And yet, do you realize that as human beings, we tend to do that even when we think of all of our lives? Instead of thinking about what Jesus says we're supposed to think about, like laying up treasures in heaven, I think about spending it right now. Every bit of it. It's not a sign of maturity. Now, Paul actually at this point is gonna move on and he's gonna give us the, uh, he's gonna transition into, back into this good character, this good example in verses 20 and 21. Is he's gonna talk about the characteristics of a true believer 
Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is the model that you and I are supposed to follow. This talks about loyalty. If my citizenship is in heaven, then the king of heaven is the one that I ought to serve. Because this is the one, according to verse 21, you know, that, that will transform my, my body. I mean, we sang about that. The last song here when the worship team was here, that's what we sang about, that the resurrected king is going to be the one that resurrects me. It's the one who sees his citizenship in heaven is the one that I ought to be listening to. Not the one that can't wait to blow it on this life or can't see beyond this life, but the one that has the perspective that's grander and bigger and godly on this whole thing that I can see not only this life, but I can see the next as well. Verse 21 tells us that this God of ours, this king of heaven, he's gonna transform us by his power. And so the point is, is if our citizenship is in heaven, then our God is the king of heaven and not the gods of this world. You know, I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come back and join me. You know, if my loyalty lies anywhere other than with Jesus, I want, I want to make sure you catch this, okay? I want to, if my loyalty lies anywhere other than with Jesus, then I am no different than those that were considered enemies of the cross. My loyalty ought to be with the king of heaven, with Jesus. You see, loyalties differentiate those who trust in Christ from those who are simply religious. As the Philippians, they received this letter. I believe they had to stop and they were listening as this letter was being read to them and they would be asking, who am I following? Whose kingdom am I loyal to? Who do I listen to? Those who are enemies of the cross, they consider it folly, or those that have sold out and committed to the Savior. That should be the questions that we should be asking too within the church. Who are we sold out to? Is my loyalty with Jesus? Do I trust him above and beyond all things? pray with me Father I pray that our hearts hearts would be right with you as we look at our lives we realize that perhaps we've given our loyalty to things that aren't about the cross and we need to change Father, I pray that this morning, if there's anyone that's sitting here this morning that needs to, in the silence of this moment, Lord, that they would repent right where they're at. That they would confess that you are not only the king of heaven and earth 
and the universe and all time over all in every possible way. Their loyalty would would be to you. Father, we love you. We thank you. You have this power, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Believers, we are all, we all come in following someone. We're all being discipled. Can I encourage you this week, would you, on purpose, make those who speak into your lives be those that are citizens of heaven who follow the king of heaven. And then watch how God opens up things to use you to serve him. God bless you. Have a great week.